Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today, I'm joined at the conference of the Association of Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies in Portland, Oregon, by Erin Rowe, a professor at Johns Hopkins University. We're here to discuss her recent work on black saints and what they tell us about notions of color and sanctity in the early modern Hispanic world. So Erin, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. That's my pleasure. To start out, I think it might surprise some of our listeners to learn that there were black saints in the early modern period, especially in in places like Spain. Could you tell us when we start seeing the emergence of these black saints? And can you give us some sense as to who these people were? Yes. So when people think about black saints, they usually think about the black Madonnas. And of course, there are several famous ones that are from Spain. But my saints are different because they are individuals who were of sub-Saharan African origin or descent. And uh, whether you're in Spain or Portugal or the Americas, they would have used the official term for people of sub-Saharan African descent was negros, pretos, which translates to black. So that's why I call my saints black saints. But they were of sub-Saharan African origin. Two of the saints that I'm working on, um, Elisaban and Evgenia, are ancient Ethiopian saints. And the, and the other two, Antonio de Noto and Benedict of Palermo, are 16th century Franciscan saints from Sicily. So you have two very different clusters of saints with different backgrounds and different trajectories, and yet their devotion to them kind of comes together, um, and, and they more or less enter Spanish devotional life around the same time. And that is the very end of the 16th and er, first decade of the 17th century. But devotion to the saints grows exponentially throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. So it's actually in that later period where we see um, the, a kind of explosion of devotion to the four saints that I work on. And so why in this particular period do you think there, there is such an increase in the devotion? There are several answers to that question, but the most basic one, if we look at it from the perspective of the Spanish monarchy, is that King Philip III was explicitly interested in cultivating or promoting devotion to these saints in order to minister to the enslaved and free black African populations, both in Iberia and in the Iberian Americas. And you'll remember during this period that Philip III is also the king of Portugal. Um, and so um, until 1640, Portugal and its territories are part of the Spanish monarchy. So that's one of the reasons why we see devotion to black saints happening in both places. But he's very explicit about this at the beginning of the 17th century. This is a period, the first half of the 17th century, that is the peak of the Spanish slave trade. So it peaks earlier in Spain than in Portugal, but there are thousands, tens of thousands of West and Central Africans were being brought and sold into Spanish and Portuguese slave markets. It started in the 16th century, but the numbers are really increasing at the beginning of the 17th century. So do we have some idea about the extent of this uh, devotion to these black saints, both in Spain and in Latin America? Mm. 
We do, and one of the ways, there are two ways we can trace the extent of this devotion. And I should say, just in, as a parenthesis, for, for listeners who don't do um, religious history, sometimes it's confusing to say, well, you're only studying four saints, how can this be such a big phenomenon? And one of the things that's important to remember about devotions, cults, what we call cults of the saints, is that you can have one saints cult be in thousands of places simultaneously so they can have a global reach and that's what we see in the case of these black saints but the way we can trace those devotions there are two ways textually and visually and there are both kinds of evidence although in some ways i feel like the visual evidence is is easier to follow mm -hmm. because we have a lot of surviving images there are just under 50 surviving images that, that I have seen in Spain and Portugal, and there are hundreds in the Americas. And in America, the Americas, the history is different because uh, the, the devotions to black saints in several places, many places, particularly Brazil, Venezuela, parts of Central America, they have active cults. So it's, these are not devotions that were abandoned after the 18th century, but they continue today. And that's another way of tracing them. But we don't, we don't see that in Iberia, with one major exception, and that is Galicia in Spain, um, where, which has a few contemporary devotions. Even as these devotions are growing, was there any opposition inside the church as well to, to this idea of having black saints? Well, it's a complicated question when you're dealing with a saint. You can't suggest that a saint shouldn't be a saint. Mm -hmm. And so the clergy have to, have to stand behind this idea that, that it is possible for black Africans to become saints. There is tension in the church over this issue or, or in the Spanish world more broadly. Not everybody thinks that baptized Africans are morally and spiritually capable of becoming fully actualized Christians. And there are, of course, parallels to debates that are going on about indigenous Christians. Uh, but it is a very striking difference that there are active calls to black saints in a period when there are not active cults to indigenous saints. And the first non-white saint of color in the Americas is Martina Porras, who is of African descent. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll look at, as you mentioned, that the hagiographies, the written ways in which some men of the church tried to defend these uh, saints.
Welcome back to the program. So in the second section, I thought we could take a look at these hagiographers because you mentioned in your work that there were certain segments of the church that took an interest in promoting these cults of the black saints. And so these hagiographies were written to, to justify these people as part of the canonization process. So to start out, could you just give us an idea of who these hagiographers uh, were? Are a number of hagiographers who are writing about different holy people of color. So, Benedict of Palermo is the most popular of all the black saints. He has the, the most images of him survive, and we have the most evidence about him. He was also the one who was beatified in. 1743. So there was a lot of activity about his cult at the beginning of the 18th century leading up to his beatification and following his beatification. We also have the witness testimony from the, those beatification processes. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of the most important saint who has the most hagiographies about him. But my, my work also looks at hagiographies of individuals that I call holy people of color or living saints. So individuals that were not necessarily recognized officially by the church, but whose followings were great enough that hagiographies were written about them in the hope that it might generate interest by important people to advance their, their sanctity. And actually one of the most famous of these is Martina Porras, who is famous because he does actually eventually become a saint, but he is not beatified until the 19th century. He's not canonized until the 20th century. So during this period of the 17th and 18th century, I refer to him as a, a living saint. Um, so I have looked at his hagiographer, um, Bernardo de Medina. So Martin lived in Lima, Peru, and so did Medina, but his hagiography was printed in Madrid for a European audience. And then one of the major hagiographers of Benedict of Palermo that I look at is this Franciscan friar also from Madrid um, named Castellano. And then a third example that, I that I've worked on extensively is of an early 18th century holy woman of color named Teresa Juliana de Santo Domingo who was a nun in a convent, a Dominican convent in Salamanca, Spain. And her hagiographer was named Paniagua. And he actually wrote a funeral sermon and then a few years later, an official hagiography. And you mentioned that these hagiographers, they inevitably have to confront this issue um, of color. So what were some of the predominant associations with blackness in the early modern period that these writers had to confront. As I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of debates, both secular and clerical, about the spiritual capabilities of black Africans. So like indigenous people in the Americas, there were a lot of disparaging connotations based on race and place of origin. Mm -hmm. So this idea that West and Central Africans had come from you know, barbaric places. Of course, they were sunk in idolatry, and which was sometimes described as demonic and sometimes not. And that they were ignorant, barbarous, cruel, sometimes lascivious or lustful, uh, rustic, ugly, uh, a whole series of disparaging comments. And we can kind of divide them roughly into two categories, one which are 
uh, directed at physical appearance, right? This idea that that blackness or or being from sub-Saharan Africa um, makes you ugly. Um, and then the other, which is related, I think, are moral or intellectual disparagements. But both are very popular. And there was a lot of talk in the early modern period, although it doesn't really gain a lot of steam until the 17th century, and it was always controversial. The idea of the what's called the so-called um, curse of Ham, this idea that um, this the, one of the sons of Noah was cursed for his disobedience to his father to be enslaved, for his descendants to be enslaved, and that they were also kind of tarnished with a black appearance. And so um, some people argued during the 17th and 18th centuries that black Africans were the descendants of Ham and that they had been cursed both in their appearance and to perpetual servitude. Mm -hmm. a, a defense of the slave trade, essentially. Uh, so there were a whole series of connotations or ways of thinking about both blackness and Africanness that were negative. And it's also important to note that as early as the 16th century, there was a conflation in Iberia between being black and being an enslaved person. So. Those two, so it was often assumed if you saw a black person on the street that that person was a slave. Mm -hmm. And so you get a very early connection between appearance and the lowest position on the social scale. Okay, so, so they're confronting all kinds of different stereotypes, physical in terms of social status. Mm -hmm. How do they do that and, and make the argument that people of color can be saints? They do that, not surprisingly, in a number of ways. And one of the major ways they do it is by tapping into some of the alternative discourses that were available to them, from particularly from natural philosophers, things that had been wandering around before then, because people for a long time, for several centuries, if not longer than that, had been trying to account for physical differences among people. What is the relationship between people, and why do people look differently from each other? And before the European arrival in the Americas, mostly they were thinking in terms of the differences between Europeans and Africans, both North Africans, but particularly Sub-Saharan Africans, and trying to think about blackness. Mm -hmm. And usually when they did so, when they talked about complexion, they were drawing from these ancient medical theories about humors, and, and also what we call climate theory. And this idea that the physical body is being affected by, by environmental factors. So you often see these discussions about people being burned black by the sun. So almost all the hagiographers immediately start talking about these color difference. They often use the Aristotelian term accident, meaning it's just a variation in nature that is no reflection on interior similitude with other human beings. So would you say that these hagiographers then are able to transcend the binary at that time between in black and white as they're writing these works? I'm not sure if they are able to, but they try really hard. <laughs> and I think I think that they do have some successes because these the cults of black saints do become quite successful, not only among 
a black Catholic community, but also for white laity and members of white religious orders, mm -hmm. white dominated religious orders. So I think they do have some success. They, of course, these this rhetoric never is never able to upend the social realities of the period and the fact that we have entrenched and increasingly ugly ideas about difference and about race that are emerging from the same period. So there's a lot of tension going on here, but it's really interesting to me that hagiographers in the middle of the 18th century are really fighting this same fight, even as we can say the the intellectual and medical tide is turning against them. Right. Uh, but they, they don't ever lose that. But that's one of the kind of complicated things about thinking about the cult of the saints and religious discourse during this period, because because it's analogous in some ways if we think about female saints, right? They're going to be lauded by the church as these extraordinary human beings who are now with God, who are influential, and we pray to them and we admire them and we love them and we venerate them, but it doesn't affect women's status in European society at all, yeah. right? Their legal status or the prejudices against them. And I think we can say the same thing is happening for enslaved and free people of color. But enslaved and free people of color do use the presence of black saints and their status as baptized Christians to agitate for themselves and for their, it's anachronistic to say rights, but to have access to certain kinds of spaces, opportunities, and good treatments that mm -hmm. they would not have had. So there are a number of benefits of this kinds of language not just in a kind of white clerical imagination, but also for uh, black Christians themselves. Yeah, because the 18th century is the time when the modern notion of race is really developing, right? And, and slavery is at its greatest extent. And I think a lot of times we associate the church as kind of supporting those developments mm -hmm. but it seems like here these hagiographers are also carving out kind of an alternative space mm -hmm. where they're i mean could we even say there's kind of a spiritual equality that's possible mm -hmm. that they're introducing yes they don't use the word equality that's just not a word that was commonly used it's like rights i mean they do use the word right sometimes but those are that's not a a vocabulary that people uh, use during that period very much. But yes, the hagiographers are absolutely making that that argument, and they had their scriptural precedent for that argument. So they're drawing a lot on the New Testament, particularly the letters of St. Paul. And of course, we might think of, people might be familiar with, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament is St. Paul talking about how we are all one being in Christ. And he specifically mentions male and female, enslaved and free. And so the hagiographers are saying, look, St. Paul is telling us that we are all the same. We, if we look at it from the, from the perspective of salvation, we all have the same opportunities for salvation that has been given to us by Christ, and therefore we are all in the same state. We are all sinful. We, are, we all have access to salvation. And they, they make really powerful arguments about that. It's important to remember that the church in this period is always in conflict with itself 
about slavery, about race, about difference. So you're going to find very powerful and popular and ugly arguments being made by parts of the church and rebuttals by different segments. And the Jesuits are particularly, you know, they're Janus faced during this period because people love to talk about Alonso de Sandoval and his, his Portuguese counterpart, um, Antonio de Vieira, who are creating all of these really powerful arguments about the spiritual potential of black Africans. And yet the Jesuits themselves are major slave owners, and not just slave owners, but slave traders. They have a presence, particularly in Central Africa, and they are making money off the slave trade. Wow. So it, these things are always simultaneously happening, and we need to hold them in our minds at the same time. Yeah, right, and not forget there are always two sides. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Okay, so we'll take another uh, short pause, and. Then when we come back, we'll look at the way these saints were represented in visual as well as written form. Welcome back. So I thought for this last part we could turn more to, uh, again, the visual form in which these saints are represented. And you mentioned in one of your articles that these black saints gain a particular fo following among people of African descent who are living in the Iberian Peninsula. So I thought, could you give us some idea about who these people were uh, and what usually brought them to Spain? They were almost all brought as enslaved people, so uh -huh. kidnapped and enslaved and brought to Spain and Portugal. There, were, there was a very small, in Portugal, there was a very small population, or actually there was, it was like a school, really, where the sons of the royal family of the ruler of the Congo would be trained um, and then return back to the kingdom of the Congo, which had um, the, the Mani Congo, the ruler of the Congo, had converted to Christianity at the end of the 15th century, and that remained an independent kingdom for the 16th and most of the 17th century. So we have a, an independent um, African Christianity going on, but in Iberia, the, almost everybody who's there, it was brought originally as a slave from West or Central Africa. A little bit later, you have some enslaved people coming from the Americas with their owners. But you also have, of course, throughout time, it, it is starting from the 16th century, larger, increasing populations of free people of color. So formerly enslaved people who, who are emancipated and their descendants. Mm -hmm. So you have both. And then, of course, you also have increasing numbers of a mixed race population. And sometimes biracial Iberians lived with other communities of color, and sometimes they lived separately. From them. And then you also mentioned that emerging from these communities, mm -hmm. you have these black confrarias or confraternities mm -hmm. that become important for the veneration of black saints. So could you tell us a little bit about what these confraternities were and how these people of African descent living in Spain mm -hmm. got involved? 
Yes. So the phenomenon of uh, what we call lay confraternities, which are basically social and religious organizations that began in the Middle Ages. So when lay people wish to have a more direct and deep, I guess you could say, religious experience, right? Because in the Catholic context, it was very easy for the laity to feel kind of alienated from the church because they didn't have direct access to most of the things that were going on. Mm -hmm. They could go to mass, they could pray, but it tended to be fairly passive. And there were many people in the Middle Ages and the early modern period that wanted to be more engaged spiritually. And so they started organizing themselves around these confraternities. And sometimes confraternities were organized around profession, be a shoemaker's confraternity and a goldsmith's confraternity. But sometimes they were organized by neighborhood. So they were very popular. And what would happen would be a group of people would get together and decide to form one of these lay organizations. They would choose a patron saint and they would commission an image of the patron saint. They would essentially rent out an altar in a church, which would be their special devotional altar, and they would create an, the images for the altar, so they would commission an image for their patron saint and maybe some other saints, and, so they, and then they would, might have special masses set there. On the feast day of their patron saint, they would have a big procession and they would carry their saint out. Mm -hmm. So they had a, a they played a role in public ritual life in their confraternity. Confraternities also played really important social roles. They were a community. So they would do things like raise money for each other. Well, everybody had to pay a little fee every year, and they would use that money for the, the upkeep of the altar, but also to do things like to bury each other and to provide dowries for the daughters of members or pensions for their widows or children if they needed some help. So it was a way of creating a kind of social safety net. So they always had those two functions simultaneously. So when you start having larger numbers of African, enslaved Africans coming to Iberia who were baptized, usually not baptized particularly well, meaning that the people who were being baptized often didn't understand what was happening. Right. The, the clergy in Iberia were trying to incorporate um, these newly baptized people into a larger Christian community. And that was always incredibly important to the clergy themselves. And so they encouraged in these enslaved people to form confraternities. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly, enslaved and free people of color start forming their own. And sometimes black Christians participated in confraternities that were what we call mixed confraternities, that had both black and white members. But they very often formed their own confraternities. And one can see perhaps quite easily the benefits of that. Then they would have a space where they could organize and socialize outside of the white gaze. And they could do things like maybe if there were common ethnic groups, maybe they could speak the same languages, maybe they had similar um, dances, similar music that they could share with each other. Yeah. And so, the, and then they could also support each other. So one of the things that black confraternities did was raise money to free each other or to engage in lawsuits to protect their enslaved members in a variety of different ways. So they really could protect each other in addition to having this devotional role that they played. 
almost all black confraternities had a primary devotion to some cult of the Virgin Mary. So they almost all had Our Lady of something mm -hmm. as their as their main saint. And and statistically, most black confraternities were devoted to Our Lady of the Rosary, which was a Dominican cult during this period, but she was very popular all of all over the Iberian world. Now, there were a variety of others, but few of them, their specific patron saint was a black saint, either Benedict of Palermo or Iphigenia. It was almost always just those two out of the four, sometimes those two together. But usually what we see is it's just the, the main virgin saint. And what's interesting about that is then you don't see the relationship between the black confraternity and black saints. You think, okay, the black brothers are only dedicated to the Virgin Mary, and that's the saint that they're most interested in. But actually, they very often have in their altars additional images, and many times those additional images are of black saints. Mm -hmm. And so we can see that the, the titular patron is not necessarily the only devotional side of their lives that they that they have kind of going on. And so the black confraternities quickly become the major promoters of black saints, both in Iberia and in the Americas, because there's a really a parallel development of black confraternities and the roles that they're playing in American cities and towns that we see in Iberian cities and towns. So and they're and they simultaneous chronologically as well as geographically. Well as you mentioned Often these confraternities created polychrome sculptures mm -hmm. to represent uh, these black saints. So could you describe for us a, a couple of examples of what these sculptures look like? The most recognizable thing about all of these images is their blackness. The black pigment that is used um, on the, to paint the sculptures themselves. And there are several striking things about this pigments that are being used. And the most striking of them is that they are, in many cases, monochromatic. And what I mean by that is that there is an, a lack of differentiation between the hair in the face, for example, between the palm of the hand and the back of the hand, and sometimes even between the, the lips and the fingernails and the skin and the hair. Sometimes there's, if there's going to be several coloration or alternate pigments being used, it will be in the lips and in the nostrils, sometimes the eyelids, the, the inside of the eyelid can be rimmed with pink. But there really is this effort to create this uniform black appearance of the saints and in order to underscore that they use what we would recognize as a black pigment yeah. right because sometimes when we use the word black colloquially can mean any any number of of flesh tones but here when we talk about the paint the pigment it's it's black sometimes it's a very very dark brown but this means that the saints are in instantly recognizable as black saints. There's n not only is there no effort to hide or obscure their blackness, it be actually becomes the most prominent feature of the visual images. And so you know that that's an artistic choice. The artist is trying to say something about the relationship between blackness and holiness that I think is really striking and important to think about.
Yeah. So what do you think they are trying to say about <clears throat> about that relationship? I think we can see some of these ideas articulated in the hagiographies themselves. Uh-huh. So one of the things that the hagiographers say, they keep telling these stories about black saints, black holy people who are mistreated because they are black. So they have all of this interesting, these accounts of social prejudice. They're being called names. You black dog, you're a black slave, even if the person is not a slave. There's a variety there. Even the, the brothers or sisters in the convents are treating them poorly because they're black and and not enslaved. But they're, you know, there's this idea of social prejudice. There's a there. The hagiographers recognize this idea that a person who is black is inferior to white people by complexion, by appearance, because that is less pleasing kind of appearance, and also because the the less pleasing appearance is a social signifier of very low status, Mm. and so leads to mistreatment. And so part of what they're saying is that this mistreatment that the saints suffer helps them develop their holiness, because there's always a relationship between mistreatment and suffering and the sort of converse levels of the attainment of holiness. So the more you suffer, the more holy you become. And if you're suffering because, in part because you're black, then that is, becomes an avenue for virtue, right? And so that's one of the things they're depicting in these saints, that their blackness is an attribute, that it is a vehicle to their sanctity. And it's so it's not something, oh, they just happen to be black, but they're a saint. He's making, they're making this argument that those things are intertwined. And even to a certain extent, that there is a special spiritual status to being black and to being enslaved, which is something not only the hagiographers say, but somebody like Sandoval also says at the beginning of the 17th century, very explicitly, that the suffering of the enslaved they, they liken it to martyrdom. It is a martyrdom, and it will mean that you will be saved more easily than your white owner because you are suffering so terribly in this life. So it seems like this is also kind of challenging the prevailing notions about race at that time to say that there's actually, in sort of a strange way, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a benefit that mm-hmm. you can get from being black in that you're, you're going to suffer more and get closer to martyrdom. Absolutely. That's one of the ways that it's functioning. So the religious orders are always in competition with each other. They, they sort of hate each other. Yeah. They're always trying to figure out how to be better than each other. You can think of it as like sibling rivalry. They're constantly engaged in competition. And one of the things they compete about is having the best saints. So starting in the 17th century, everybody wants to have members of their orders being canonized. So there's the Carmelites are really excited when Teresa of Avila is canonized. And the Jesuits are really excited when um, Ignatius of Loyola and Francis Xavier are canonized. So there's a lot of competition. And the idea is the more rare your saint is, the more prestigious it is. Mm. So Teresa of Avila is extremely prestigious because she's a woman, which is fairly rare, and she's the founder of an order, which is really rare. The only thing better than being the founder of an order is being a martyr. And the Jesuits have some martyrs, and they're very excited about that. So 
Uh, and so one of the arguments that I make is ha having a black saint is a marker of prestige. And so we see the Carmelites very aggressively promoting their black saints at the end of the 17th and the early 18th century. Elisabon and Ephesinia are Carmelite saints. And Antonio de Noto and Benedicto Plermo are Franciscan saints. So we see the representations of these saints not only in churches, right, where black confraternities might have been housed or like parish churches where people might go, but also in private spaces in convents and monasteries where they're clearly being included in this kind of larger story about the religious order. Mm -hmm. So they're they're being recognized by the members of the order as being of particular importance. So just to kind of conclude here, mm -hmm. uh, it seems like in many ways a lot of these, uh, particularly members of these orders in the church, are promoting this different notion of blackness than what you might find in other elements of the society, whether the confrarias mm -hmm. or the hagiographies. Mm -hmm. um, but you also mentioned that this is taking place at the same time as this very repressive notion of race is gaining ground in the society. Mm -hmm. So can we say that there's any more lasting effect to mm -hmm. this kind of alternative vision of race at mm -hmm. this time? Or does the more dominant version just win out in the end? Well, that's a really good and complicated question. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, if you look at the story, it's very easy to say, well, the dominant story wins big time, uh -huh. right? Um, because things just get worse, right? And by right. the time we get into the late 19th century, we have the entire continent of Africa being carved up between European powers and these incredibly ugly discourses of race coming into their own, really, in, in Europe and popular and intellectual culture. So it's hard to think that anything kind of gets better for enslaved and free people of color, particularly in Europe. And we see in Europe in particular the extinguishment of black confraternities by the middle end of the 18th century. In Portugal there are some by the beginning of the 19th century that are kind of hanging on. But eventually they, they disappear and they've been more or less lost to memory, which is why we tend to know very little about black saints. On the other hand, we can argue, it might be a little bit of a tenuous argument, but I, I think that it w is worth developing more. This idea that a lot of these discourses about spiritual equality, about the potential for Africans uh, uh, not only to be good Christians, but the equality of all souls, that these become important arguments for the abolition movement, right? Which is going to start also coming into its own in the 18th century. So one of the things that's really interesting about this period is you never just have one story, right? It's never just the story of racism wins. But you have, at the same time that's happening, the abolition movement is, is really starting to articulate arguments. And the, the first anti-slavery arguments, anti-slave trade and then anti-slavery arguments that are being made in Europe are going to be arguing on, the ba on religious basis. Right. And in the Spanish context, we see some early examples of what we can call anti-slavery arguments. And they're going to be grounded in this idea that there's something horrifying about multi-generational 
enslavement, right? It's one thing to enslave a pagan Central African and baptize him Christian. But when that baptized slave has children who are Christians from birth and you keep them enslaved generation after generation, this is maybe a problem. Mm -hmm. And so we have the seeds of these ideas but do they go anywhere? How powerful are they? You know, we, it's always tricky to think about in terms of genealogy. I'd like to think that there are multiple ways that there are lasting effects of this movement, but you can't necessarily trace a clean arc. And certainly we know that there is lots of racism still in existence in the United States and in Europe, if, particularly if we think about Portugal, a city like Lisbon where you know there's a, a large African population, immigrant population, and a growing black uh, African black African immigrant population in Spain as well. And there's a need, a contemporary need, to grapple with the integration of black African communities at the same time that there's an increasing awareness of the Iberian history of slavery, right? This is not an American problem. This is something that happened here in Iberia too. And now we need to think about these things and come to terms with them. At the same time, we're coming to terms with these contemporary political problems. So they are continuing entangled issues. And I think that this is a really great moment to, to say, look at these images of black saints that are still in your parish churches that is a part of this history and let's reflect on them and bring them out of the shadows admire them artistically because they are some of them are extraordinarily beautiful and moving and also just reflect on what what they can teach us about the moment that we're in right now and particularly because one of the things that we're all grappling with, both in Europe and the Americas, is this question of memorialization, mm -hmm. right? So when we're talking about coming to terms with your history of slavery in Iberia, we can think in terms of memorials. And in what ways are images of black saints acting as a form of memorialization? And that in what ways do there need to be increasing memorialization of that past? And what form should it take? There was just uh, recently in southern Portugal an excavation found a mass grave of enslaved people. And there, so we're just beginning, archaeologists are just beginning to find the kind of evidence that we've been finding in the Americas for hundreds of years. Now there's this, okay, what do we do with this dig site and with the remains and with, you know, what this is making us confront about our own history. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program, Erin. I think that it's really important to share this story, you know, a little studied, I think, aspects of uh, Iberian history that as you mentioned, has important ramifications even up until today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.